My name is Dirk. I'm a pastor here. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, yeah, as Daniel said, just kind of talking about distraction. I don't know if this is specifically what um, some of you have been feeling this morning. I've been really feeling it this week, especially when you have a newborn and you don't sleep as much. It's hard to get focused, but not even just that, but just what's happening in the world, what's happening in our families, our community, can create a lot of haziness. And so I think as he was getting at, like the best antidote for that um, is an explicit passage like this. Um, Today we're not going through um, general promises of God. We're not going through um, specific application about how to be a better parent or spouse or anything like that. We are looking at the death of Jesus. And above all other things, this is what can make reality the most clear. When we see Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, on display for the entire world to see, and to see what he gives through his death and his resurrection. So, this is where we are this morning. So, we are today at kind of a part three of a four-part series through this passage, uh, usually called the Suffering Servant, through Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Um, If you've been with us for a while, we started going through Isaiah almost a year ago in March. Uh, Actually, I think it's been a year now, maybe this Sunday. Um, And contrary to four years in Matthew, we'll be wrapping this up sometime in the fall. Um, But what we've done is essentially gone through kind of chapter by chapter, maybe skipping a few and and kind of consolidating a lot together to get a joint message. But for this passage, you could almost do a verse sermon each week, but we're just going to do four sermons through this. So what we're going through here is probably the most, within Christianity, the most well-known or most used passage in Isaiah. Um, that's quoted in sermons, in books, in, in series, and all things like that. But this, at a bigger level, is something called, it refers to something called the Messianic Profile, which is essentially the Old Testament prophecies and the descriptions of what the Messiah would be like. It builds his profile. So if, if someone were to come and say, I'm the Messiah, if they fit these descriptions, it would prove authenticity. So before Jesus, there were plenty of people who led movements and and claimed to be the Messiah, but they would die and not bring life, not bring any kind of change. But what we see in Jesus and his life, death, and the resurrection is that he fits the bill perfectly. You see it in, in Genesis 3 being the snake crusher being the true sacrifice, being the true shepherd, the king and priest, and in this passage, the suffering servant. So what do we see in this passage, what we have today in these few verses? Essentially, the vivid description of the torture and murder of Jesus. And you can connect this with the last chunks of all the gospel accounts. That he was the innocent lamb led to slaughter. That he made his grave with the wicked by dying his death on the worst death possible on a cross like a criminal. And then in that last verse, with a 
verse with a rich man in his death is really referring to him being buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man. Last week, Donovan focused in on the love that Jesus showed us as the suffering servant. And really coming to this point, no one has truly loved. Leaders of of different religions and worldviews and even one another here, we have never truly loved. We have never given of ourselves freely. Only Jesus has done this. And it wasn't easy and it wasn't cheap. Because what we see in this passage is that Jesus loved us and gave his life through affliction. How did Jesus engage with this affliction? What did he experience? Let's try that first. We look at the gospel accounts. In summary... this up here. What we see in the garden that Jesus, under so much stress, was sweating drops of blood, which is an actual possibility. He was put into shackles. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was lied about. His beard was plucked out. He was spat on. He was given a crown of thorns that were embedded into his skull. He was scourged using what's called the cat of nine tails, which was a kind of whip that had different strands, and in each strand you had different kinds of material, bone, metal, of different shapes, hooks, and it was used to repeatedly beat and essentially tenderize the victim. Read from the source here what it would actually produce. The injuries sustained during scourging were extensive. Blows to the upper back and rib area caused rib fractures, severe bruising in the lungs, bleeding into the chest cavity, and partial or complete pneumothorax, which is a puncture wound to the lung, causing it to collapse. As much as 125 milliliters of blood could be lost. The victim would periodically vomit, experience tremors and seizures, and have bouts of fainting. Each excruciating strike would elicit shrieks of pain. The victim would be diaphoretic, which is profusely sweating and exhausted. His flesh mangled and ripped and would crave water because of the loss of fluid from bleeding and diaphoresis. The steady loss of fluid would initiate hypovolemic shock, while a slow, steady accumulation of fluid in the injured lungs would make breathing difficult. Fractured ribs would make breathing painful, and the victim would only be able to take short, shallow breaths. The tips of the cat of nine tails would lacerate the liver and possibly the spleen and other organs and expose bone. It was essentially suffocating at that point. And then to carry 
a near 100-pound crossbeam through the streets, still being mocked, still being spat on, carrying it through the roads and up to the hill where he would be crucified, to have nails go through his hands and feet, to continue struggling to breathe because in that position you would essentially suffocate unless you would push down upon the nails in your feet. His friends left him. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. He had the horror of looking at his mother, seeing him disfigured. And then taking on the weight of sin. And bearing God's wrath towards that sin. And being utterly forsaken. Yet how did he respond? carried his cross. He didn't opt out of what he knew he had to do. Before, as he's getting arrested in Matthew 26, he says to Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He didn't waver He understood his mission. He practiced what he preached. It says in Luke 9, 51, I really like the NIV translation here. It says, As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knew what he was coming to do. And he did change his mind. And through all of that, He didn't open his mouth to curse. There was no deceit. See, Jesus at any point in time could have rightly condemned the people who were killing him right where they were because he was innocent, because he was without sin, and they were all truly guilty. They all played an equal part in that. But he didn't. He doesn't curse And I think what's shocking for us to really take in, one of the first things that Jesus says as he's crucified is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who is like that? To be treated at that level and to turn and pray for them, that they would actually be forgiven. When would we have cursed? When would we have gone out and condemned those who are trying to kill us, who are trying to murder us? Right? Would it have been the first punch? Would it have been the first insult? Would it have been being put in chains? Would it have been the scourging? It reveals how we engage with affliction. Specifically, how we are, what happens when we are personally attacked, when we're insulted, when we're betrayed, because none of us here have really been scourged. But we've been insulted. We've been betrayed by people. 
I think a natural response that we commonly have is that we want to protect the reputation. You want to protect your reputation as an employee, as a boss, as a leader, as as an organization even, as a family, as a neighborhood, as a city. Because if I'm honest, I, I want to protect Redeemer from criticism. I want to protect Redeemer from things that are wrongly said about this church. Because it has happened. Wrong things. Terrible things. And I know that these things get said amongst people in the community around us. And how that affects the way people see us. And I don't want that. I want to be able to engage with every single person and make it right. Which then speaks volumes about how I want to protect myself from criticism. I want to correct the lies. I want to explain my stance or our stances instead of being generalized. Because we don't do A, B, or C, therefore we must be this. Therefore we must be bigoted. Therefore we must be unloving. And it's just not true. I'm sure you've been in those kinds of circumstances, in those kinds of interactions with people. Another response that we can have is just having what's called a scapegoat, where we essentially try and put the criticism or the blame that we had upon ourselves and put it on something or someone else, a different organization. It's the church's fault. It's the pastor's fault. It's the politicians and the policies. It's the boss. It's the friend. It's the spouse. It's the family member. And it goes on and on. That way it keeps you from actually dealing with the real problems. A lot of the real problems are here, but when we have a scapegoat, it's putting the problems and the issues out there instead, and it's not good. It's letting or creating someone to suffer in your place. But we also curse. In our thoughts, like a lot of us feel like that we're pretty upstanding, but man, if we looked at our thought life, how we viewed one another in this room, how we viewed our kids, how we viewed people on Facebook and Twitter, it is just terrible. Or maybe it is actually erupting in our words and how we speak against our spouses, how we speak against people behind their backs, the lies we have, the insults, spewing hatred. What the Bible says is through that we've already committed murder in our hearts. Or we get violent. Why? At the core of it, and I think a good amount of it, what I'm going to focus on today is we do this because we want to be seen as righteous. We want to be seen as right. No one in this room, I think, wants to actually be verbally attacked or physically attacked. We want to be seen is right. We want there to be peace. We want there to be harmony. Or at least, we want to be seen in a good light. Uh, how many of you have read the book To Kill a Mockingbird? It's probably sophomore English, if you got that far in school, if you're there yet. Um, a few years ago, uh, Harper Lee finally put out, like I think her second book in general, but also the sequel to that book, Go Set a Watchman. It's a good book. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It, it's based... In a lot of the same setting, but it's a couple decades later. 
where essentially you have Scout, who's the daughter, um, gets angry with her father, Atticus. And this has been this tension brewing throughout the book. Um, that though times have changed from the first book, there's still racism, things like that happening in the small town and county in Alabama. I think it's Alabama. It's in the south, deep south. But what happens is, is that she perceives his actions or his inaction as racist, although from the reader's perspective, it's really not the case, and what you eventually get to know later on in the book. And in this scene, she just rips into him for like three pages. And she is livid. She is freaking out. But through that whole thing, he hardly says a word. Right? You, if you're familiar with To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus is this kind of Christ figure where he's like, he has wisdom. He has a well-thought-out answers. And at any point in time, he could have just disarmed it and stopped the conversation to help her understand. But he just sat there. And she gets to a point where she says how she despises him and everything he stands for. And his response to her was, well, I love you. Because in that moment, his love for his daughter outweighed the need to be understood. That if she were to know anything in that moment, it would be her father's love, not that her father was right. And it brings us to the main difference between the afflictions of Jesus and ourselves. Because what we see the differences here is Jesus' righteousness was being questioned. But he knew who he was. He didn't doubt that. He was the creator of the world he was walking. He was the creator of the tree that made the cross that he died on. He's holy and true and pure and eternal and without sin. But we question our righteousness often. Which is why we're combative. Because we make it hinge on how people receive us instead of Jesus and how he receives us. Or it's built upon our flimsy efforts. Jesus didn't question his righteousness. And he knew his path. And that path was to make the many righteous. Our path is not to make ourselves righteous or to make the world righteous. It is to rest in his to abide in his love. Not to make our own way or to make our own attempts, but it's to see that Jesus has made the only way through his sacrifice for you. His blood was spilled so that you would be made clean. His plan of redemption from the beginning was this. There was no other option. There was no other path or course he was going to take with the church or with you. It was always going to be through the cross. His blood cleanses you. His blood cleanses the church. His death is now your death, and you are united with Him and in the newness of life through His resurrection. Because you don't have the final say over what makes you righteous. Your boss doesn't have that say. 
The professor doesn't have that say. The world, Facebook and Twitter, does not have that say. The news does not have that say. The enemy does not have that say. And neither does the one who abused you. Jesus has the final say, and he says, it is finished. His grace has no end, and it overflows to all who see their brokenness, who see their state of affairs, and look to him and see life. Look to him and see freedom. Look to him and see salvation. You were cleansed because of that. But through all of that, what, what was really the driving force for Jesus to go through all of that? He listened to his father. We see it throughout the Gospels. He heard his father's voice. Being in perfect community with the Father and the Spirit. What you see in the Gospels, Jesus constantly going to be alone with the Father to pray and to speak with Him, to hear and listen. What He says in John 5, 19 and 20, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. He does the Father's will. He doesn't just listen to it. It is a tangible relationship. And he follows it out with what he does. Later on in chapter 5 of John, he says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. God is making a statement by Jesus coming to us, by Jesus taking on flesh, by Jesus coming and healing, by Jesus coming and casting out demons, by Jesus coming and dying for us. He shows the relationship that he has with the Father. Perfectly obedient. Perfect joy. What a joyful thing to know the voice of your Father. Always. To know the true path and way in which you are to walk. To actually know peace. To be sustained by what the Father provides. That was Jesus' constant experience of his relationship with the Father. Now, for many of us, this can seem foreign, right? Like God speaking. And maybe that's because he seemed really distant or silent to you in this season. But Jesus still engages, engages with his people today. Right, like Jesus did not open his mouth and speak against those who were murdering him. But he speaks to the church. He speaks to his people. He's not silent with you because, get this, he loves you as the Father loved him. I think if you were to, man, narrow down for me, the essential, for me, essential verse Scripture is John 15, 9. He says, As the Father has loved me, 
so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Just sit on that. Refuse to leave this room this morning until you're just floored by that. That Jesus Christ loves you as much as the Father loves him. Perfectly. Eternally. Infinitely. With compassion. Undying commitment. Steadfast. Renewed every morning. That's how he sees you. He serves us. Jesus doesn't just check the boxes with us. To just get by with us. To just get us to the line and then kind of let us do our own thing. He lavishes us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He deeply cares for you. And the cross is that reminder. There's a lot of things I can include here, but man, two things. He prays for us. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, all of us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our advocate. He speaks on our behalf. He is our representative before the Father and pleads for us to be blessed. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he is able, Jesus, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He doesn't take breaks. He doesn't get tired praying for you. He's constantly praying for you and me. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God doesn't see you with condemnation. Jesus speaks for you. He is your righteousness. And he speaks to us. Let's get to that. Ministry of the Spirit. So Jesus ascends. He says, it's better for you if I were to leave. Why? Because Jesus, as a person, was only with the disciples. God is still omnipresent, but Jesus, as a person, was still just doing ministry with wherever he physically was. But with him ascended, what he does is the Spirit now coming down into the world and residing within every believer covers the earth, salts the earth with the glory of God. So that wherever you go, Christian, his presence is as well. Part of that ministry of the Spirit. Man, you can just go through John 14 through 16. He leads, he guides, he reveals truth as we just sang. He speaks to us. And this is not just some idea or well-thought-out idea or craft I have. It's an actual supernatural faith. And I think we can often get detached from that notion because if any of you really read Acts, I think you would think otherwise. 
every chapter what's happening. God is moving in power through the disciples, through ordinary, everyday Christians. God is speaking through them and to them and leading them into places where the gospel is not yet taken hold. And so with that, man, there's just some crazy stuff that happens in Acts. And we went through part of that last summer. But man, for yourself to just dig into that book and go and underline and highlight all of these areas that God moved through the church. And when we do that, we we have to come to the conclusion that God just isn't normal. He's not like us. And we have to stop making Him like us and trying to make Him fit the way we want to do ministry, the way that we want to walk with people, the way that we want to speak with people. If He's actually calling and leading us into more risky, more bold, and courageous ways of living out the gospel. And to reinforce that, we'll get to this chapter in a couple sermons. Isaiah 55, 8-9 from the Lord. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, last time I checked, it's really high, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is always going to exceed what we think he will do. Because his ways are higher than our ways. But the great thing about that is that as the Spirit is ministering to us and, and leading us and walking with us, that gap begins to close. Because the Spirit renews our lives. He renews the areas of our lives that we've given over to sin and makes us more like Jesus. And what, when we, guess what, when we are aligned more and more like Jesus, our desires become His desires. Our thoughts begin become more of His thoughts, and we can hear His voice more and more the more we walk by the Spirit. So let's not find it odd that God would work in this way. Let's not avoid the weird passages that God says He will speak to you and speak through you. But let's live lives that He's actually commanded us to live. Let's not get weirded out when Jesus heals the sick and calls us to go and pray for people and to do the same. Let's not settle for less because the Father speaks to his children. And through Jesus' afflictions, he does this. He doesn't just pay for our redemption and brings us into that. He actually equips us to engage with afflictions like he did. Like I was saying, the, the desires of God that he would conform us more and more to that as we walk by the Spirit, the same way happens with how we engage with afflictions. Because it will happen. It's just a matter of if you're actually going to be walking with Jesus through it or not. Jesus told us that we would be persecuted to some degree. As we follow him, he's told us to pick up our crosses and to follow him, to die to ourselves daily. I just read this quote this morning, and I had to find out who the author was, but I found out it's about David Slyker. Never heard of him, but it's a good quote. He says, As long as Christians are uncompromising regarding the cross, 
Jesus and how he defines love and truth, there is no place for them in the world as it has currently been constructed. Read that again. As long as Christians are uncompromising regarding the cross, what it is to us and for us, Jesus and how he defines love and truth, there is no place for us in the world as it has been currently constructed. There's tension in that. And so, but with the tension, we are called to walk with him, to lean into him, to listen to the Spirit as we go forward in life. And he equips us to man, endure, but also to imitate. To imitate him as the afflictions come. And so, I know Donovan was making us laugh a lot last week about application. Like, the application is to worship Jesus. And I agree. A little bit of application for this. Be slow to speak. If we have learned anything from this year, from the last year, is be slow to speak. People in person and online are always pressuring you, explicitly or implicitly, pressuring you to view or to voice your opinion. What do you think about this hot topic? What do you think about masks? What do you think about systemic racism? What do you think about this, this, and this? And if you don't answer, oh, it's violence. It's contributing to the issues. Let's lean into the Lord and where he says, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. And I don't think many of us like to engage in keyboard warrior, uh, guerrilla warfare, but be slow to type. Don't jump to being on the defense or the offensive. Don't be quick to assert yourself in your view. Be slow to it. And your thoughts, as Paul says, take them captive and make them obey Christ. Take them to the Lord and from that, deepen the relationship that you have with your Father. If, if this passage of the suffering servant and how Jesus engaged with afflictions, does anything for you today, let it be this, that you would deepen your relationship with the Father. Because there's something about that relationship, what we see in just those three verses of how Jesus functions. His relationship with the Father was so close and so intimate and tight and full of joy that he was able to do that. Shouldn't we do likewise? Through that, through what Jesus gives us, church, friends, family, we are called to thrive in that. That's the place where we actually flourish through afflictions, through the furnace, through the wilderness. That's where we thrive because that is where we lean in closer to Jesus, not where we question Jesus the most. And that can happen, but through that, we push through, knowing his promises, knowing that he's faithful and that he will meet me in the mess. He will meet you in the mess. So will there be challenges? Of course. Let me give you this, this story here. 
Some of you are, are, are familiar with uh, the missionary Jackie Pullinger, um, or one of the books that she wrote called Chasing the Dragon, which essentially is, is a lot of her story. So she's uh, currently been doing uh, mission work in Hong Kong for over 50 years. And it is, uh, man, some of the most intense, um, hands-on experience I've ever read. I would encourage you to read the book. It will challenge you like crazy. But let me just read a little bit here. As we are called to imitate Christ. So, Jackie was only five years old when she first sensed the call of God on her life. As she grew to adulthood, the message became even clearer, go. Where, Lord? Go, trust me, and I will lead you. Rebuffed and turned down by every missionary organization she contacted, no one wanted a British musician who lacked proper missiological training, Jackie sought the advice of her pastor. Well, if you've tried all the conventional ways in missionary societies and God is still telling you to go, you had better get on the move. If I were you, I would go out and buy a ticket for a boat going to the longest journey you can find and pray to know where to get off. <laughs> she did. Jackie Pullinger quite literally took a slow boat to China from the UK and for the past over 50 years has been ministering in Hong Kong. Within Hong Kong, the infamous walled city where Jackie set up shop sat on only six and a half acres of land but was home to upwards of 50,000 people. That's just a couple blocks. It was quite literally a world unto itself with neither China nor Great Britain exercising proper jurisdiction. It was a haven for thieves, murderers, extortionists, drug lords, pornographers, illegal immigrants, and refugees, the homeless, runaways, pimps, and prostitutes, many of whom were 12- and 13-year-old girls sold into the trade by neighbors, boyfriends, and even parents. Pornographic theaters, as well as opium and heroin dens, lined the narrow walkways and alleys. The triads ruled the city, Chinese secret societies that had denigrated into ruthless criminal gangs. The filth was beyond belief. Open sewers, human refuse flowing freely in the streets. Rats that no longer reacted to the shrill screams of frightened visitors. Bodies of addicts who overdosed the night before were piled outside the city. And into this nightmare walked a 20-year-old girl from England who had no money, no job, and couldn't speak a word of Chinese. But she managed to learn enough to tell the heroin addicts about Jesus. And in the book, you see what only God could do. You see gang leaders come to know Jesus. You see prostitutes come to know Jesus. You begin to see more of that city come to know the Lord and see the kingdom take shape. And man be another sermon unto itself, but through the miraculous healing of God, she was able to see firsthand, um, and almost exclusively through the gift of tongues, to see uh, heroin addicts become healed cold turkey without withdrawal. And it was almost an always happening case. But it started with imitating Christ, going to the unloved, going to the bottom of the barrel, 
And through that, she was able to see what only God could do. So, doesn't it sound like a better way to live? <laughs> yes, in a way. Does that mean I get on a boat to China? Maybe. But let's start right here. Let's start right here with life in the Spirit, where we seek the Lord to be sustained by Him, and to know that, gosh, we are being prayed for by Jesus right now. Even while we sin right now, always, we are being prayed for by Jesus, and He's leading us into green pastures. So let's, let's respond. I, I want to quit talking. I don't want to keep talking. Um, We need to see, guys, we need to see the love of Jesus for us. Um, Come on up, guys. Um, Yeah, so let's respond. Man, I'm out of words. That's good. That means God's going to clearly speak now. So um, we're going to respond in a few different ways. And so one, which as Daniel said, we're going to partake in communion. And simple enough, uh, if you hadn't got one of those cups, get that. And through that, we remember the body of of Jesus broken for us. We remember his blood shed for us on our behalf, guys. And we see that sacrifice as the true sacrifice that we no longer have to do. It's done for us. It's a free gift. And if you follow Jesus, that is for you. If, If that's just not where you're at today, we ask that you would abstain from that. But as you do that, just to to soak that in, that it's a blood bought gift for you. And he still loves you through it. He still prays for you through it. And we'll give you a chance here to pray, to linger, and ask God, what does it look like for me to imitate you? What does it look like for me to walk with you, to walk with you in this church, in this community? Um, Also give you the opportunity to sing and to, to respond in joyous singing and how God has actually called you and changed you and to make you his own. And then if God has really worked in your heart this morning has given you uh, a word of encouragement or prophecy to to share at the body. Daniel's going to be up here with you and just kind of work through if that's something timely to share with the body this morning. So I'm going to pray and let's get moving. Let's go. Um, Lord, man, we just give it all to you. We we surrender it all to you. Um, If if that's not where some of us are this morning, Lord, would you just stir Uh, mightily within us right now and just cause us to move. Stir up this body, stir up faith, and that we would expect great things. Not that you're the butler who who waits on us, but you are the Savior and the Redeemer who, who does serve us in a deeper way, in a more intimate way. Lord, you love us. We see that. We see the afflictions that you went through and it was worth it. You say it was worth it. You didn't change course. You endured it for the joy that was set before you. And Lord, you've brought that joy to us now. So God, we seek you. We seek you, Jesus. We don't want to just have hypothetical ideas about what life with you could be like. We want it to be real and tangible now. To hear your voice. If we don't hear it, if we don't see you move, God, we don't want to go. So Lord, we call upon your faithfulness to rise up this church.
into the people that you've called us to be. The sons and daughters adorned with beauty and splendor who bring life into darkness. Who speak truth unashamedly. Who walk in boldness and love. Transform us, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. In your name, amen.